Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Nothing About You Says Computer Technology, a podcast about cybersecurity and data privacy viewed through the lens of diverse voices. I'm your host, Anthony, a cybersecurity, data privacy, and regulatory attorney based in Oklahoma City. While I am a lawyer, I am not your lawyer, and this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Instead, think of this as a conversation between two friends. But if you need legal advice, please, please, please find a local attorney that can help you. Today, we have an amazing episode. I interviewed Louise O'Connor, a data scientist at Inscribe. We chat about her experience with AI and machine learning, the work that she does at Inscribe, bias in AI and its impact on women, and diversity in technology. I hope you enjoy today's episode. We are super excited to have Louise O'Connor here today. Louise is a data scientist at Inscribe, a fraud detection startup. Louise has a background in artificial intelligence and machine learning. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I know I just gave you a very short introduction, but could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, and thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I am from Ireland, and I'm currently based in Dublin. Um, I actually have a master's in biomedical engineering, but when I graduated, I moved into more of a software engineer, data scientist role with a specialization in AI. I have previously worked as an engineer in ResMed and Optum, and as you said, I'm currently a data scientist at Inscribe. Um, For those of you that don't know, Inscribe is an award-winning fraud detection and document automation solution. Fintechs and financial services companies can use Inscribe to increase decision speed and accuracy and to automate other tedious manual processes. I work on our data science and engineering team, building on our fraud detection and document intelligence capabilities, um, mainly working on natural language processing features such as classifying the type of document, you know, is it a bank statement, is it a tax form, etc., and automating the parsing of bank statements and other such documents. We'll talk a little bit more about the work that you do with Inscribe a little bit later, but first, could you just generally explain to us what a data scientist is? So the responsibilities of a data scientist is going to differ slightly from company to company, but in general, data scientists look after things like cleaning, gathering and analyzing large data sets, finding patterns and trends in data to uncover insights and help make business decisions. They might create algorithms and data models to forecast outcomes. Um, It'd be pretty typical to work with um, languages like R or Python. Um, Myself personally, I work on building machine learning models and putting them into production. I want to talk about your origin story. A number of our listeners are just getting started with their careers in cybersecurity and in the technology field. How did you become interested in AI and in in technology? So, like I said, I was undertaking my engineering degree and I got the opportunity to take a few classes on AI and I was immediately very, very interested. This very much guided me in my job search after college and I was lucky enough to be accepted into a grad program as a software engineer specializing in AI. And this allowed me to dive deeper and to develop my skills in the area. Um, I found that AI allowed me to combine my interests in, in math and data scientists with my enjoyment of programming. It's very much a growing field. There's constantly t- new techniques and research em- emerging, which is really exciting. And there are so many com- career opportunities in the area. And I also find it fascinating how AI can be used to apply powerful technology in so many different industries, including healthcare and fintech. There are so many ways that people can get into the tech space. I interview a lot of people 
who have various different backgrounds. Some of them have PhDs to others who just have certificates from programs. Uh, but you have a bachelor's in biomedical engineering and a master's in engineering. Can you talk about how college prepared you to do the work that you're doing now? So there are the, the technical skills that I would have learned in, in college, like data analysis, um, a good foundation in math, um, an introduction to computer science. Um, but there's also a number of soft skills that I learned. Every company that I've worked in has required me to work on, on project teams. Um, so I was really glad to have gotten a lot of experience in that in college. I learned how to write technical reports, how to read and write scientific research papers, how to give an engaging demo. Because I converted to a software engineering role after college, I did have some knowledge gaps that I needed to fill. And luckily, there's so many online resources these days, like um, Google Academy, Coursera. Um, I did um, a few nano degrees with Udacity. So a nano degree is um, a program that you do for maybe three to four months, putting in maybe five to 10 hours of work a week. And I did three of those um, in deep learning, natural language processing and AI for healthcare. I want to talk about the work that you do at Inscribe. I know you talked about it just very briefly, but could you walk us through uh, what the company does? Yeah, absolutely. So if you think about applying for a loan or setting up an account and all of the relevant documentation that you need to provide, most companies have manual review teams where they'll have teams that have to individually go through and appraise all of these documents. Doing this manually is time consuming, it's expensive and it's not scalable. Um, so we're able to use our, our solution to um, automate these processes. Um, computers are significantly better at recognizing patterns, which can be used to detect fraud. Our algorithms can, can detect anomalies in the font or the formatting of the documents, whether the document has been edited in Photoshop or another editing software, and even detect fraud that a human wouldn't see. And as I said before, you know, I'm, I'm working on these um, fraud detectors and um, also on the, the parsing of documents. So this is very important for our automation offerings. Um, you know, it frees up people from having to um, manually extract information from the documents um, because we're able to return um, all the pertinent information from the documents um, in an API response. So let's just take a step back for a moment. Could you just give us maybe a basic high-level explanation of what uh, AI, artificial intelligence is? Basically, AI is the ability of computers to do tasks that usually require human intelligence. And then machine learning is an application of AI where algorithms find patterns in historical data and then use that information to make predictions. Real-world examples include a social media algorithm that looks at what the user has viewed and recommends them more content or um, a model that determines the probability of a credit card transaction being fraudulent. We've heard a lot of criticism of artificial intelligence, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But I think it's important that we start our conversation uh, by talking about the importance and the various uses of AI. AI is important because rules-based systems are very limited. Many real-world challenges from making medical diagnoses to recognize, recognizing objects and images are, are too complex and subtle to be solved by programs that follow sets of rules written by people. Significant new products and capabilities are enabled by these advances in AI technology, like self-driving vehicles or a virtual assistant like Alexa. 
Um, AI also has a lot of use cases today that, you know, enable revenue growth and cost savings in existing sectors. So it can help reduce errors, increasing the chances of high levels of accuracy and precision. Techniques are are using the medical field to discover cancer cells on MRIs with as high precision as highly trained radiologists. As I mentioned before, computers are much better at pattern recognition. So in some areas, AI can be even more accurate than humans. Um, it can, it's, it's usually more cost efficient because it frees humans up to do more high value work and it can make our lives easier. Repetitive tasks are very monotonous in nature and in general, humans have a low threshold for boredom. Um, such tasks can easily be managed with AI's help, um, inexpensively, faster and at scale. Machines can also process much faster and can perform several tasks at once. Um, these intelligent machines save a lot of human effort so that they can focus on more complex tasks. And then finally, another advantage of AI-powered technology is that they can have 24-7 availability because machines don't need breaks unlike humans. Um, for example, a chatbot interface um, that can use natural language processing to offer 24-7 product information and answers to customers. So it's clear there's just so many different applications of AI. So now that we talked about the importance of AI, I want to spend some time talking about probably one of the biggest criticisms of AI, and that's uh, the potential for bias. When we talk about bias, it's important to note that AI can help identify and reduce the impact of human bias, but it can also make the problem worse by baking in and deploying biases in sensitive areas like finance and hiring. How do you respond to this criticism? I think that this criticism is absolutely warranted. Because machine learning models learn from historical data, we have to be very conscientious about what data we give to our models. Bias can be introduced in the data collection phase by either using data that's not representative of reality or using data that reflects existing prejudices. AI applications are already commonly being used to aid medical diagnoses, screen CVs, conduct job interviews. However, many models have been trained on data sets that are riddled with data gaps. And because most AI software is proprietary, we have no way of telling whether these data gaps have been taken into account. Um, One very prominent example that always sticks in my mind um, was the Amazon CV recruiting tool, which was trained to vet applicants by observing patterns in resumes that have been submitted to the company over a 10-year period. Because it's a male-dominated industry and most of the CVs submitted over the years have been male, the system effectively taught itself that male candidates were preferable and it was penalizing resumes that included the word women's, you know, as in women's chess club captain. And it was downgrading graduates of two all-female colleges. Amazon eventually had to retire the tool. I feel that this example really illustrates how AI can replicate existing structures of bias and inequality in society. Similarly, in facial recognition systems, bias has been uncovered where we see that they perform worst on dark-skinned females and best on lighter-skinned males. And when we kind of interrogate, um, you know, this lower performance, we're led back to the data sets on which they were trained, which are um, nearly exclusively made up of white male faces. If, um, if anyone's interested in reading more about these kind of data gaps, I would recommend the book Invisible Women, Data Bias in a World Designed for Men. Um, it has a good section on technology and, and AI, but it also covers data gaps in the areas of public policy, healthcare, scientific research, and it's well worth a read. I want to drill down a little bit more on this criticism. The impact of this potential bias is often more deeply felt by women and people of color, and you presented two really, really strong examples. 
Uh, part of the issue is that women and people of color are not involved in the process, uh, working with companies building this technology. As a woman working in the AI field, could you talk about the importance of having someone like you involved with AI? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, the benefits to having a diverse perspective in the workplace are, are pretty obvious. And of course, I mean, diversity of all types, age, gender, ethnicity, physical or mental ability, background. But I think the most important thing is diversity brings a multitude of perspectives, ideas and approaches that are invaluable to business success. A diverse team better represents the customer in terms of building a product that is tar- targeted to, to the diverse customer base. Your personal perspective leads to original ideas. Um, there's a, a psychological shortcut called the availability heuristic, and this illustrates how humans are most likely to look for solutions and when examples easily recall from past experience. I think that you had a previous guest on, Dan Draper, on the podcast, and he was discussing how in the first like, iteration of the, I think it was the Apple Watch, they didn't include any functionality for cycle tracking for women. And this seems to be like, you know, an unbelievable oversight. And I think, you know, we can't say for sure, like how, how this um, came about or why this came about. But it's like one example of something that could happen if you're not considering your diverse customer base and having diverse voices on your product team is always going to help that. I start every episode of this podcast along with every cybersecurity or data privacy law school class that I teach with a discussion of a cybersecurity, privacy, or technology story in the news. Is there a story in the news that we should be keeping our eye on? One challenge that I have been closely observing is this crisis of fake or fraudulent accounts that we've started to see not only in financial services, but across many industries in general. Earlier this year, PayPal admitted that they'd found millions of illegitimate accounts within their customer base. A Twitter whistleblower is saying that Twitter is not being honest or proactive about fake accounts on their platform. Then on dating apps, not only do you have catfishing, but you have cases like the Tinder swindler where people are either falsifying or misrepresenting their identities. It's so easy for people to be dishonest about their identity when they're behind a computer screen. So it's really important for any company and industry that interacts with customers online to be doing its due diligence to ensure that people are who they say they are. Some companies are already addressing this with verification methods. For example, if you if you start a new YouTube account and you're trying to upload more than 10 videos in one day, Google will stop you and make you verify your identity to ensure that you're, you're not a bot or a spam account. AI can help here, but to the point we were just discussing, you need to ensure that your AI and ML models have not fallen prey to any bias. In the financial services industry, there are no KYC or know your customer regulations that require businesses to um, do their due diligence. But, you know, potentially more industries could benefit from adopting practices like this. I want to switch gears and talk about uh, the technology workforce. One 2020 study found that women make up about 29 percent of the tech workforce in the United States. Uh, As a woman navigating the technology space, can you provide some advice for our listeners, especially our women listeners, about getting involved in the tech field? Sure. Yeah, like as you said, there's been a pretty persistent and unfortunately unmoving gender diversity problem in tech and in AI for a while. Um, And when it comes to women in tech leadership roles, the statistics are even more dire. I know that I was reading a a New York Times article recently that came out when the CEO of Meta, Shel Sandberg, announced that she she would be stepping down. um, And it quoted a report that said that at Silicon Valley's top 150 firms, 
4.8% were led by women at the end of 2020. That's a devastatingly small number of women in leadership at tech companies. I would say that I have been very fortunate in my career to not have worked at companies where there was a lot of gender bias. And I also recognize that as a white woman who was born in a first world country and I had the opportunity to be college educated, I do have privilege that a lot of underrepresented groups do not benefit from. And that sometimes makes me hesitant to even bring up some kind of small incidents or microaggressions. Navigating it for me has like always been about being conscious of the ways that men and women are treated differently in the workplace and also being an, an advocate for, for myself and for my career despite that. Um, an example of something that I have experienced at some of my previous companies was that women in general were more frequently asked to take on admin or organisational stuff like taking minutes, organising events, um, etc. than our male colleagues. Um, I read somewhere that it's it's sometimes called non-promotable work because it's not included in performance reviews. It doesn't lead to advancement. It doesn't get compensated. And like, don't get me wrong, I love jumping in to help out my team and I love organizing things. But I actually had a mentor at the time and he pointed out that it was totally within my rights to push back on being asked to do those things because all of that time I might be spending on admin tasks was time that I wasn't spending on my technical work, honing my skills and that could be something that would ne- negatively affect my career in the long run and, and that of my fe- fellow female co-workers because our male counterparts had been able to dedicate 100% of their time to more high value work. Um, yeah, I would say as well, like the pandemic has been very hard on women in the workplace. And I think a lot of women have reported that their workload has increased and they're spending a lot more time on household chores and dependent care as well. And less than a third have an access to flexible work arrangements. Um, but, you know, we're extremely fortunate at Inscribe. We're a remote first company um, and they work very diligently to assure that parents and non-parents as well in our org have have flexible work schedules that they want and need um, in order to, you know, work at their best ability. What should companies be doing to increase the number of women in the technology field? For me, I always think of this kind of like as a two pronged approach. So the first being attract and then the second being retain. So the first attract is about building this pipeline of women going into tech. For me personally, engineering or AI wasn't necessarily an obvious career path growing up because I wasn't really exposed to it. You know, I went to an all girls school and we didn't have you know options to take computer science classes. We didn't even always have a physics class, um, for example, whereas the equivalent male school had all of those classes available. Um, so it can be huge for girls and young women to be exposed to STEM at a young age, even just having the opportunity to try out coding. There's loads of great organizations doing this, like Girls Who Code, Code a Dojo, Girls Develop It. And they're so important because you need to give young women a chance to get exposure and to try their hand at some of these careers so that they can feel confident in committing to a STEM degree when they go to college. Another big thing in this area is showcasing and giving a voice to women who are already in tech industries. If young women only ever see men being featured in the tech industry, like on the news, in conferences, on podcasts, they're going to think that it's an industry where only men can succeed. So they need to be able to see more positive female role models participating and being elevated in the field in order to be able to picture themselves in it. In my last company, we would actually visit different primary schools and talk to the girls about what it means to work in computer science. Um, Inscribe has sponsored meetups and events for local communities for women in computer science, like PyLadies and women in data science. And my colleagues and I have given talks at some of these events and meetups. And all of these things, I think, can really help promote tech careers to diverse communities. 
And then to talk about the second point is about retaining women once they get into the industry. Even for someone who makes it into the STEM, a STEM career, they may experience, you know, um, microaggressions um, that might make it not a very hospitable environment for them. And this only increases if you're part of an intersectional mi minority. There was this um, really good report, I think, a few years ago um, by Accenture, and it was called When She Rises, We All Rise. Um, and they listed 40 cultural factors in the workplace that affect gender balance. And within orgs where these factors were found to be more common, women are four times more likely to reach senior manager and director levels. Of course, I can't list all 40, but a couple that like really stood out to me were gender diversity is a priority for management. You know, it really has to be a top down approach. A diversity target or goal is shared outside the organization, which I think is really important for accountability and that virtual and remote working is widely available and is common practice. I kind of have already touched on this last point about flexible working hours um, and how crucial they are for women because women are, are still the primary caregivers for their household and they need to be able to work in a way that works with their lives. In a similar vein, paid parental leave and childcare existence is also huge for this same reason. Um, in Ireland, we have legally mandated paid maternity leave, but I think in the US, um, that may not be true. I'm not an expert in the area, but from conversations I've had with my US co-workers, it definitely seems like that hurts a lot of women and, and mothers in the workforce. So having that flexibility makes it much more feasible for women to continue with their tech careers. And then additionally, having the option of return to work schemes, I think can be really, really great for people who've had to take parental leave or step away from their career for a period of time, because I think that because technology moves so quickly, it can sometimes be intimidating to return to that. Um, yeah, so they're, they're just some of the ways that you can create and maintain a diverse workforce. No, I think that was a great answer. And I know you talked a little bit about uh, retaining employees and the National Science Foundation did a study that found that a trend called the leaky pipeline, where it's difficult to retain women in STEM jobs uh, once they've graduated with a STEM degree. And so I think the suggestions that you kind of offered uh, were really, really important for people to hear. And so I, I really appreciate that answer. One topic that we talk about on the podcast uh, a lot is diversity in the cybersecurity, privacy and technology field. Could you just talk a little bit about the importance of diversity? I know you mentioned it earlier when we talked about AI, but I just want to just drill down and have a discussion on this topic. We have so many different statistics that can really back up how important it is to have a diverse workforce. I actually jotted down some statistics here. So it says that 43% of companies that have diverse management report higher profits. Businesses with, businesses with ethno-racial diversity practices are 36% more likely to perform better than their peers. 73% of companies with gender equality practices have higher profits and productivity. So it seems, you know, unarguable that diversity in the workplace is a positive. Equity and inclusion are also equally as important to talk about. It's not enough to say, okay, we've hired, you know, X number of women on the team. We did it, box ticked, you know. I know many female colleagues who've been hired as the only women in a leadership position on their team, but then were never given a chance to speak in meetings. You need to make sure you're giving your diverse employees a voice, a seat at the table and the resources that they need to succeed. Many companies have specific resource groups, sorry, resource groups that can help with this. But, you know, honestly, diversity and inclusion needs to be a cultural practice that comes from the top. Could you let everyone know uh, any upcoming conferences or speaking engagements that you might have and then where they can find you on the Internet? Yeah, absolutely. I'm on LinkedIn at Louise O'Connor. 
Um, I don't have anything upcoming at the moment, but I have spoken for a few webinars um, this year for Inscribe. So you can check those out at inscribe.ai. Um, and I'd also like to add as well that if you're in the fintech industry, you might be interested in some exciting new features we've released from Inscribe this month. So we've just put out our new credit analysis and advanced document automation features. And these features will help our customers better manage credit and fraud risk, as well as approve more customers faster. So you can also find information about that um, at Inscribe.ai. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. We really appreciated uh, you spending some time with us and talking to us about AI, data science, and diversity in the technology field. Thank you so much for having me as a guest.